The Guardian. Hi, Ian here. Before we start today's episode, we have a word from Jonathan Friedland on a new podcast from The Guardian's politics team. I'm Jonathan Friedland, and if you didn't know, I'm an American politics obsessive. Every Friday for the next three months, I'll chat with some of The Guardian's best reporters and columnists in the US about a single question prompted by the 2020 campaign as they navigate what is already one of the most bitter, divisive and important presidential contests in American history. The current president has cloaked American darkness for much too long. This election will decide whether we will defend the American way of life or whether we will allow a radical movement to completely dismantle and destroy it. You can find us in our usual Politics Weekly feed on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I feel about vaccines like I feel about tests. This is going to go away without a vaccine. Mr. Deputy Speaker, we all know, though, that over the long term, the best solution to this crisis would be a vaccine. A vaccine that can, that, that can defeat the, the virus. And to deploy it in every single corner of the world. And I'm, I'm hearing all sorts of positive uh, noises. A number of vaccines are now in phase three clinical trials. This phase three must take longer because you need to see how truly protective the vaccine is. You also need to see how safe it is. Again, we'd love to see if we could do it prior to the end of the year. We think we're going to have some very good results coming out very quickly. In terms of realistic timelines, we're really not expecting to see uh, widespread vaccination until the middle of next year. In the hurry to make a vaccine for COVID-19 that is both effective and safe for use around the world, researchers must obviously get the science right. But there are serious ethical challenges too. To prove that a vaccine is fit for use, clinical trials go through a number of phases. For the Oxford vaccine, this has meant recruiting more than 10,000 adults and children. Some will be given the vaccine candidate, others a control. Then the volunteers are sent out into the world to see how each group fares. But rumbling along in the background of all of this is a debate between academics, researchers and health professionals about whether we should also be running human challenge trials, where volunteers are deliberately infected with COVID-19, or at least a weakened strain of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. The argument goes that deliberately infecting willing participants will give us better information about the disease and any vaccine or treatment much faster. Yet there are also those who are resolutely not in favour of running COVID-19 challenge trials, at least not for the moment. For them, the risks remain too great. We had an internal checklist, uh, which included the, the following question. Would I advise my family members to participate? And if the answer was no, our group decided that we would not do that particular challenge. I'm Ian Sample, and this is Science Weekly. Today, you'll be hearing the first part of a conversation that dives into these thorny ethical issues. To tackle some of the questions surrounding the use of human challenge trials for COVID-19 vaccines, I sat down virtually with three experts. So I'm Alberto Giubilini and I'm a, I'm a philosopher and I'm a research fellow at the Oxford Euthero Centre for Particle Ethics at the University of Oxford. And I've worked a lot on vaccination recently and I recently authored a book titled The Ethics of Vaccination. 
Hi, I'm Seema Shah. I'm a bioethicist at Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago and Northwestern University. And I first became involved in challenge studies when I chaired a panel on the ethics of Zika virus challenge trials for the NIH. This is uh, Myron M. Levine. Friends call me Mike. I'm the Associate Dean for Global Health, Vaccinology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Mike, you've been doing human challenge trials in one form or another for decades, starting, I think, with cholera in the 1970s. Can you tell us first off, what exactly is a human challenge trial? How do they work? It's where one uh, creates an experimental infection in uh, volunteers under very carefully uh, controlled and monitored conditions. When we began doing challenge studies in the uh, 1970s, they were very much out of the mainstream. Now they've become very, very mainstream, and they represent one more tool that we have to study pathogenesis of a particular infection, which gives insights of how to make vaccines or perhaps to design therapeutics. We can look at immune responses in a way that is truly unique because you know the antibody or cellular immunological status at the moment of challenge of the volunteers. And that may be the single most important uh, use of challenge models as a tool in the modern era. And do you have a sense of how much they can speed up vaccine development? I don't think they speed up vaccine development that much. Uh, I think this is a buzz that was put out early on in a couple of uh, short papers by folks who, meaning well, but had no experience doing challenge studies. And I'm not sure that they really uh, accelerate. But uh, in the end, one wants to use challenge studies as a tool to develop an intervention such as vaccine, and a vaccine has to go through evaluation, a more definitive evaluation of efficacy and safety in much larger numbers of individuals, and there's no shortcut to that. Seema, there's a debate going on now around human challenge trials for COVID-19 vaccines. Why do some clinicians and scientists want to go down that route? So I think that Mike was right, that in general, there was a lot of excitement about challenge studies at the beginning of this pandemic as a potentially outside-of-the-box way to speed up vaccine development. But those proposals really didn't pay attention to how long it takes to set up a challenge model and also how quickly vaccine development was proceeding. There are instances where challenge studies can really um, make a difference in vaccine development. So with the Zika epidemic, for instance, when it became impossible to conduct field trials for Zika virus vaccines, because outbreaks were so sporadic that you couldn't launch a vaccine trial in time in a particular site, then challenge studies offered a way to continue to test Zika virus vaccines. And since it seems like Zika hasn't completely gone away, that's an important way that these tools can be used. 
But that's very different from the current context where we've seen really accelerated vaccine testing and large numbers of volunteers participating, which can give us the best data about whether these vaccines will work for everyone. I think the couple of possibilities that are still viable options for challenge studies right now, things like testing reinfection, trying to understand reinfection better, because right now we don't really know how likely people are to become reinfected and whether they're going to be more sick or less sick after they're reinfected. We only have four cases confirmed of reinfection. And it could also be really helpful for finding second generation vaccines. So once we find the first vaccine that works, it's not likely to be perfect. It may not be as safe as we would like. It may not work in all populations, and to quickly test and compare the vaccine that was first to be proven effective against the many other vaccine candidates in development, that might be another really valuable use of challenge studies. A good deal of the hesitancy around challenge trials is obviously linked to health risks. Alberto, we know COVID-19 is a killer for a minority of people and deeply unpleasant in many more. And its long-term impacts are still largely unknown in in all sorts of age groups. I mean, given that that's the case, is it possible to say sort of what level of harm is acceptable when people are deliberately infected with the virus? This is perhaps the main ethical question when we talk about challenge studies. The level of risk that is acceptable in a challenge studies is very hard to say what the threshold is. So the requirement for challenge studies, but indeed for any kind of research, is that the risk should be minimized as much as possible. Now, in the case of challenge studies for the COVID-19 vaccine, ways of minimizing the risk are things like, for example, selecting participants within the age range that is at lowest risk from COVID-19. So, for example, people aged between 18 and 30, they would be good candidates because they are capable of giving informed consent, but the risk uh, of COVID-19 for them is relatively low. But it's true that we do not not know yet what the long-term implications of COVID-19 infections are. And this is something that should be taken into account, for example, when we uh, decide whether or not participants in challenge studies ought to receive some payments. In more standard traditional uh, research, participants are sometimes often compensated for uh, time and effort. Uh, They are not compensated for the risks of the drug that they have to take. But in the case of challenge studies, there is uh, a stronger case, I think, for taking risks into account to a largest degree and think more carefully about whether or not participants should be compensated. It's important to protect participants from the risks of challenge studies insofar as possible, and then also to make sure that they are cared for in case they actually do come to harm. Some people have suggested that the way to do that is not to compensate or pay for risk up front but actually to create a system so that any kind of injury that occurs is taken care of, that participants have access to the health care they need, um, and that if they have longer-term burdens or loss of wages, that those things are paid for as well. Some people have also spoken about a death benefit that would be given to the family members of somebody who died in challenge studies if that were to happen. Um, So I think these 
Although I agree with Alberto that it's really important to ensure that if participants take on risks, that they aren't left to bear the costs of the harms alone. It seems to me that the right way to do that is to take care of them if they are harmed. My view is that the two things are compatible, so you can easily have both. But in the case of challenge studies, I think there is a stronger case for an additional requirement of paying for the risk. So these are different things. So these are two separate things, but they are not mutually exclusive as far as I can see. Mike, I wondered if I could bring you in here. I mean, this idea of risk, obviously you want to minimize the risk as much as possible, but is there a general rule on where you set the acceptable risk level, what is deemed to be acceptable? Obviously, you know, looking at infectious diseases, you could have things like Ebola at one end and a common cold at the other. The way we have handled this at our center over the decades is uh, to consider the degree of discomfort, uh, et cetera, and the period of time that such uh, discomfort might occur. And then we had an internal checklist, uh, which included the, the following question. Would I advise my family members who were eligible to participate? And if the answer was no, our group uh, decided that we would not do uh, that particular challenge. And there were uh, uh, instances where other uh, groups uh, in the late 1980s, for example, or 1990s, went ahead with some uh, infection uh, models that, that we had uh, uh, turned down. The judgments around all of this, Mike, they must have to take into account um, the potential for rare adverse events. And with a new disease, it's really hard to know, presumably, what they will be. Absolutely. And that's one reason for caution. On the other hand, if this were bacterial or parasitic and we had an intervention, that changes things. If one knows one can have a reasonably high degree of being able to interrupt reliably the infection and the consequences, it's very different from viral disease where one typically does not have a treatment interruption. But we need to put the challenge model in the overall context of what the model is supposed to do. Most of us believe that to get past this, uh, the, the, uh, the enemy we face, which is uh, this SARS-CoV-2 virus, that causes this bad disease in segments of the population that we uh, need a vaccine. And that's the best and surest way that we can try to interrupt transmission, indirectly or directly protect those at highest risk, and then be able to open up economies and send people back to school. The reality is, there is a segment of the population in all industrialized countries and also in uh, low and middle income countries that is very hesitant about taking vaccine. 
So if there were, even though it's a calculated risk, even though you take a, an age group where a bad or fatal disease is uncommon, if there were to be a bad event, you need to consider that in the very broad context. How does that really help accelerate or allow us to get where we want to be with a an efficacious and safe vaccine based in trials in tens of thousands, but then that has to be given to millions and hundreds of millions. We need people to have confidence. If a bad thing occurred in a challenge study, I think that ends up, uh, you know, front page. I think that that would push things the other way. I wondered if I could pull in Seema and Alberto here and ask them, at what point do you say you know enough about a disease and enough about a vaccine to understand the risk that a challenge trial volunteer will face? Seema, do you want to go first? I think we have to recognize that uncertainty is inherent in research. The goal of research is to learn about um, diseases or vaccines. So there's some amount of uncertainty that you have to accept if you want to do research. That said, there's a lot less that we know about this disease. When you compare challenge studies with SARS-CoV-2 to challenge studies with malaria or cholera, these are diseases where in the case of malaria, there's a treatment that you, a specific treatment that is curative against malaria that is uh, susceptible to that treatment. So that's what people are infected with. When we've interviewed challenge study volunteers in the past and asked them about risks and burdens, in the challenge studies that are more common, people often emphasize that they're quite burdensome. You have to spend a lot of time coming to the research site or even being isolated there. You have to receive a number of tests and be closely monitored. Many of them even just were really bothered about having to wake up early and get to the site driving through rush hour traffic. But the concern that they might have had about risk was whether there were these longer term complications that would never go away. And I think that's what gives me the most pause right now about SARS-CoV-2 challenge studies. So while I think that in general we accept some uncertainty in research, it seems like SARS-CoV-2 challenge studies are sort of bumping up against the upper limit of what we would otherwise permit. And then when you think about the value that they might add and the risks of public distrust um, that they could engender, it's a really it's really unclear to me how SARS-CoV-2 challenge studies might actually be worth those risks and harms. So I agree with Seema, and this brings me back to one thing I said before, that in the case of COVID-19, we, there is way more uncertainty because we really don't know much about this virus and about the long-term consequences. So I agree that in this case, there is more uncertainty and therefore it's very difficult to say what an acceptable, acceptable level of risk is because we really don't know what the long-term risks are. But this is one part of the problem. So this is one consideration. On the other hand, we need to consider what the alternatives are, what the alternative scenarios are. Uh, so we are talking about a disease that has affected and is likely to affect a huge number of people. For example, one relevant question is how likely is it that 
a research participant would get infected anyway at some point. One thing that we are uncertain about now is the actual infectious rate. And to me, so I disagree with Sima here, because to me, this is a reason in favor of having challenge studies in the case of COVID-19. Uh, this, again, brings me back to the point I made before about whether or not we should compensate, we should pay people for the uncertainty in itself, quite apart from compensating them for any possible harm. I wondered if um, I could ask you about the the pausing of the Oxford vaccine trial. We've heard this week that the trial was paused, I think it was for the second time actually, because of one of the volunteers falling ill. Um, we obviously don't know the details of um, how connected, if at all, that illness is to, to the vaccine, but the, um, the condition, which appears to be transverse myelitis, is, is, is known to be associated with some viral infections. How do things like that, if at all, affect the sort of judgments around challenge trials? Let me answer in a very abstract way. Um, bad things do happen, even if they're rare. When such a thing happens in a challenge study, it has consequences. There is the famous uh, episode of uh, Jesse Gelsinger, a young man of, uh, I think he was 19 years of age, and had a very mild, clinically mild form of a genetic defect that is severe in most individuals. There were gene therapy experiments going on in, in volunteers. The uh, gene that was to repair his defective gene was to be given by means of an adenovirus uh, vector, and he was given a huge dose, and there was a cytokine storm. He went into shock. He died. That led to a shutdown of all clinical research, and we were shut down like every other place. There was such a pushback at the time. These are the kind of consequences that can occur as rare as can be, but they occur. When they occur, the consequences can be enormous. I think that Mike's points about the fact that any serious adverse event is something that when the entire world is watching is going to reverberate and have consequences. And if that kind of adverse event had occurred in a challenge study, there would be predictable and negative consequences from that adverse event. But I also think it's an important illustration of why clinical trials with large numbers of people are valuable to do. This vaccine is going to be given to hopefully pretty much everyone in the world. So very low rates of adverse events are things that we do have to worry about. And having larger trials and then having safety monitoring after vaccines are given to people will be really critical in this pandemic and to get us to the other side of the pandemic. So I think that for the AstraZeneca news, that's an illustration of clinical trials doing what they're supposed to do and catching events that are then very carefully examined to see if they're caused, in fact, by the vaccine or not. That kind of data is really valuable and can't really be produced from a challenge study. That's it for part one. 
As you may have read, the Oxford trials have now resumed, following an investigation and recommendation to the Medical and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency. In part two, I'll be joined once again by Seema, Myron and Alberto, when we'll be discussing the importance of rescue treatments, how to make sure participants truly understand the risks when giving consent, and running trials with octogenarians. If there was a group where a challenge study would really provide information of great public health impact, it would be in older individuals where the risks would be very, very, very real, even of, of, of death. But the value of the information would be so, so much greater. Have ethicists discussed that amongst themselves? All coming up in Thursday's episode. Until then, stay safe and let us know your thoughts by emailing scienceweekly at theguardian.com. The Guardian. 